this week on Dig Me Out. Your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with something we haven't done in a while. It's an interview. What? Yeah, somebody wanted to talk to us. Oh, good. How about that? Jay, this week we are going back to the future. I don't know what that means. Basically, we're going to talk to uh, uh, someone who put out some records in the 90s, and he's got records coming out just right now and future records so uh we're not just talking to someone who you know done sometimes talk to people who are done (laughs) do we well yeah i talk to people who have moved on they've become graphic designers or uh oh you know i'm done you're done so what are you up to now i'm done pretty much just done just done no uh jay from the band every mother's nightmare we were on Arista Records at the beginning of the 90s, and um, they've got a new record out called Grind. Rick Rule is joining us from the band. We're going to be talking with him about the history of the band, and he's going to fill us in on what's going on with them now and what's going on in the future. And uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation, Jay. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to happen right now. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Rick. I appreciate it. And um, thank you for having me. Thank you. And uh, I wanted to ask, you know, I was looking back through the albums. Um, it's been a while since uh, Every Mother's Nightmare put out a release that was back in 2002. And then um, in 2015, there was the EP that came out. And then this year, 2017, we've got the, the full length with takes. Um, the EP and then add some new studio tracks plus some live tracks. And I'm just curious, you know, what ended up uh, getting the the band together in, in the new formation back in 2015? And um, what was the decision in terms of uh, putting out new material? Well, I mean, we, uh, we've always been together. I had a couple of guitar players that were, uh, they were they were leaving uh pursuing their family life and had some kids and uh you know they'd been uh banging around with me for a couple of years so uh you know people uh people change and uh their uh things they're looking to do uh get a little different but uh man i just started uh, playing with some different people and uh had ronnie hammer come in on the drums and uh we just started banging around and uh and, and travis feller uh had him come out and, um you know, we just started playing some older songs, and uh, we played for played maybe four or five old songs in uh, that day in the room, and uh, we automatically just started. Uh, you know, we just said, "Let's write a record." You know, because that's kind of what I do. I like I, I write daily, whether I'm playing in the band or what. I'm I'm pretty much writing all the time. So, uh, you know, we just started throwing songs together, and uh, we just kind of you know kept putting pieces together, and then we decided. Uh, you know, we were looking how music is today, and people were putting out EPs, and 
you know, we had a couple of songs already down, so we just uh, we threw together the grind EP, and we were just, you know, going around playing and uh, selling out the trunk of the car, and uh, you know, just trying to stay alive. You know, music was kind of a uh, had a, a real bad dip there for a while. So, uh, you know, we ran into uh, Bill Chavis, and he heard the uh, he heard the grind EP, and he uh, just called me and said, "Man, let's do a full length record." And uh, the thing, uh, most of the, uh, the fans and stuff where we've been playing, uh, talking about old stuff and, uh, and older songs and this and that. And we just, uh, I just called him and asked him if we could put some, uh, do like an eight song record and throw some live tracks on there, maybe put a couple of videos, uh, just to catch everybody up. And, uh, you know, we call it one stop shopping with the MN. <laughs> <laughs> so in between, um, so you did three records back in the early 2000s uh, for Paris um, between 2002 right. and 2000 and 2002. So were you still gigging from 2002 to 2015, or um, were you playing in other bands besides Every Mother's Nightmare, or just or you know under a different name? Um, what was what was the stuff that you were writing for then? Uh, man, I've always pretty much had the the band together. Uh, I did one little. I did one little side project where that's where I met John Gunnery, the, our other guitar player. Uh, he had played on that with me, and uh, you know, I, I tried a little side project just to, just to, uh, just to see, <laughs> just to see what it was. You know, I had some songs that really wasn't kind of EMN stuff. It was just kind of more acoustic, kind of acoustic rock stuff. And uh, okay, you know, I did that for a minute, and. Uh, you know, but the the EMN is it's always been there, and it's always uh, we're always been we've been playing uh, since the uh, you know perception of the band we've been playing somewhere. Uh, and so I think the whole time I've had this band together, I took a year off maybe. Wow! So I'm always alive somewhere. Music was there was just a real good spot music, you know, especially for you know we're I never considered us an '80s band, but we were kind of. We were kind of found in the '80s, so I guess we got it. We're kind of stuck with that. But man, we're just a rock band. We're just a grip it and rip it rock band, and uh, you know, uh, that's what we'll do till we die. I guess we can't do anything else other than mow grass. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's go back real quick to um, to when you started the band, or I guess when you started with music. When when did you discover rock and roll, and what was sort of your journey to your first band? My well, my journey was uh, Uncle Greg was a uh, he's a, he's a traditional drummer, a very good drummer, and uh, he, I started out beating around the skins for a little bit. And uh, but my uh, my turning point was uh, when I was seven. I went to see Alice Cooper. Welcome to my nightmare. My mother took me to oh my to god see that, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it kind of you know uh, it kind of twisted me, and uh, I was sold after all, you know so. Uh, that was my first tour. Welcome to my nightmare, and uh, my band is Every Mother's Nightmare. So <laughs> maybe maybe it had some kind of influence on me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So how old were you when you when you say I want to you know um, put a band together? Was the first band Every Mother's Nightmare, or was there a band um, be, before that, like a high school band or a, or a just you know a garage band with a bunch of kids what was there was many many cruddy bands (laughs) okay Uh, i think it was me and my me and my stepbrother eddie had our first band uh you know and it consisted of him playing drums and me playing guitar and it was horrible (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know uh we uh it started as uh, you know just everything my i think my first um my first real gig i was like 15 uh 
I eat it up in a place on the uh, strip in Knoxville, Tennessee called the, uh, I think it was called the library and, uh, uh, somehow got into there and, uh, that was my first show. It was packed and, um, you know, that, and, uh, and then I played one other place in a, in a double wide trailer with about 350 people in it. And, uh, you know, that started it. <laughs> and so when do you form, uh, every mother's nightmare? That would probably be, uh, I'm saying somewhere late 87, 88, maybe. Okay. Uh, I was in a band called hard knocks, uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee, and they had a record out called Mark of the Rocker. And uh, I, I, started, uh, I started out playing rhythm guitar with them, and uh, I did two practices, and they wanted me to start singing. So uh, I, I, I jumped in and tried to do that. And, um, you know, I just, um, after that kind of uh, kind of broke down, I, I was playing with uh, Jim. Jim Phipps had a band in Nashville, and we were doing shows with them. And uh, when I got fired out of Hard Knocks, he... Uh, like two days later, he was at my house and uh, wanted me to come to Nashville. So I moved to Nashville into a 10 by 20 uh, store off uh, unit with a, you know, a place where you put your uh, furniture and stuff when you move. And uh, I had a guitar and a sleeping bag and a black and white TV and uh, put this band together and just been uh, rolling ever since. Wow. So you did, did you, um, I guess, when did you know you could sing or when did you want to start singing? <laughs> Well, I don't know if I still can sing, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I was just the only person that would do it, really, where I was at. You know, uh, uh, I don't really call it singing. I just get up and bitch about shit that's happened to me for the last year, you know. So, <laughs> 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 um, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just something that, uh, that I like to do. I don't know. Uh, it, it's just a, it's a different feeling getting up and uh, get somebody connect with what you're saying or what you wrote. Uh, it's a pretty awesome feeling. It's not so, because I've been I've been struggling through it for years. So was it hard to put the guitar down? Because uh, do, do you play? You don't play guitar in the band, right? You just sing. I, I used to play a little bit in the band, but mainly just sing. I, I haven't got the brain capability to do two two things at one time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I play. I play every day, pretty much. So was it hard to put the guitar down and just and, and just be the singer? No, yeah. man, it's a. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. It's just fun standing up and standing on the end and uh, end of the stage and uh, telling them what's happened. It's a good thing. <laughs> it's therapeutic. <laughs> so, in in reading through the um, the history of the band, um, one of the early uh, milestones is is that you guys got signed to Arista Records, which was uh, the Clive Davis record label that you know is legendary um can you talk a little bit about like what that process was because we know we hear about from talking with people about all the crazy things that go on when bands are getting wooed to sign to labels you know dinners and all (laughs) sorts of crazy things can you kind of you know let us in on that what happened when you guys got signed man we went from um we actually went from actually nothing, not even a show. Uh, we played like 13 shows, and we came down to Memphis, and uh, I think we came down like a couple of days before they had a thing down here called the Producer Showcase. And uh, it's basically like uh, South by Southwest or something. It's just for, you know, bands come and, and record labels come down and see uh, unsigned bands. And um, we got through on the, the very last very last night in the smallest club, <laughs> 
and uh, we put like 900 people in there, and uh, we went from literally that night to the next morning. We were uh, we were having breakfast with ASCAP and and talking to serious players like you know Jason Plum from from Atlantic and and uh, some some really serious folks, you know. So uh, that really uh, th- our lives changed a bunch right then. You know, it just uh, it went from nothing until to bam, and then uh, after that, you know, we just started doing. Uh, we had a bunch of people, a bunch of labels interest interest in us, and uh, you know they just started coming to see us. And uh, uh, our manager at the time, Doc Field, told me he goes, uh, "Man, Clive Davis wants to come down and see you guys play." And uh, you know, Clive Davis, he signed some pretty serious serious folks. Uh, yeah, he's not a joke by any means. <laughs> so uh, we didn't have nowhere to play. We couldn't uh, we couldn't get a gig nowhere. So. Uh, we we found this old warehouse and we just built a stage and uh, put some lights and a PA in it and got a bunch of beer and had a bunch of our friends' bands play and uh, he came down and we commenced to uh, we commenced to wooing him with our ways and uh, <laughs> by the end of the night you know the end of the night he took my boots off my feet and uh, said he was going to put them on his desk and uh, you know uh, that you know we signed with we every time that somebody else put a counter offer in for us he would top it by by miles, you know, so, uh, uh, and I was kind of, I was really digging going with him because, you know, Eris at that time didn't have any rock bands and Geffen and, uh, Atlantic and everybody had millions. And, uh, so I just kind of, you know, you can't go wrong with a guy named Clive Davis. And, uh, he has no rock bands to push except one. And, uh, thought that was a pretty good move. <laughs> so what do you think that, um, what did he see in the band? I mean, it was sort of a different kind of, uh, uh, he's not known for. Uh, he has some rock bands that he's discovered, but he's more of a pop guy. Right. What do you think that he saw in the band? Yeah, he just uh, he liked the rawness of it, and that's all mm. it was. You know, like I said, we'd played we'd played thirteen shows. All we know, all we knew that we uh, we wanted a record deal. We didn't know what we were going to do with a record deal, but you know, <laughs> that was the goal was trying to score a deal. And uh, you know, it was just raw. That's what you know. He goes, that's what he liked the most about it. You know, it was mm. just. Uh, Grip it and rip it. You know, we've learned a lot since. We've learned a whole lot since then. I have to do everything the, the ass backwards hard way. So uh, I had to learn what to do with a record deal and learn what to do with writing songs and, and putting them out. And, um, you know, I just did it backwards. But that's uh, the way I do things. <laughs> <laughs> so from... You know, how, how soon after you get signed are you guys in the studio? Is it immediate? Did you already have, uh, you know, enough songs to go to the studio? Or did they put you out on the road to get you some experience? What was that like right oh, after you signed? Man, it was, uh, it was, everything was just bam, bam, bam. We signed, we were in the studio, and then, then we were out playing $50 a night shows for, forever you know uh we was out with bands like baton rouge and people like that opening for them and uh you know one night uh, one night we got to a club and we'd been opening for baton rouge for probably two months and uh we were headlining and they were opening for us and then then it changed uh love to make you blind started hitting and uh changed everything interesting was that did that get <laughs> uncomfortable no, it got careful. We went from eight or ten of us in a van to a bus, so it was a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, it was it was very uh, it was very eye opening. Uh, I'll tell you when it happened. We hit uh, 
we played in a place called Tampa, Florida. They used to have a thing called livestock down there. And um, we'd been in this uh, van for months, you know, just tr- playing every night, playing, playing. And uh, we got down to this show, and um, we didn't even realize that we were heading it, headlining this show. But it was in Tampa, Florida. There was 19,000 people there. And uh, we were headlining this thing. And uh, there was a guy down there named Austin that run the radio station that was pushing our song. And uh, he was talking to us. He's like, man, you guys don't even have a clue, do you? And we're like, what do you mean? You got like the number three song in the country right now. And y'all, are, y'all don't even realize that you're headlining the show. We're like, shit, man, we've been in a van for eight months. You know, we don't, <laughs> we didn't know nothing, you know. But uh, it was an eye-opening experience. And uh, that's when everything kind of changed for us. <laughs> how bizarre is that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so how, like explain that to us like how, how much of a change did you see how how, did, how were things different uh, I would say the biggest change is like I said we were going from uh, eight ten of us in a van to you know playing little bitty clubs for 50 minutes to you know playing 1500 seaters uh, playing 5000 a night 10000 a night uh, you know <laughs> Just everything has changed. We're all of a sudden doing videos and and you know doing things like uh, you know we we did some things for Playboy and, and shit like that. You know, just uh, just stuff that wasn't really happening to us before. Mm, gotcha. And who were you touring with at this time? Were you still were you a headliner or were you getting any opening uh, we were, good opening uh, slots? We were doing we were doing Baton Rouge and. Uh, and people like that, uh, Circus of Power, smaller bands. Uh, until then, then we started playing with, uh, you know, we played with everybody. You know, the probably the two biggest shows we did at that time were uh, we did the we did Cheap Trick in Nashville, and we did uh, shoot. Uh, I can't even think of who, who it was now. Um, uh, oh my lord, I can't remember the name. Anyway, <laughs> um, is it Dream Theater? Dream Theater, yes. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> that's a big you know, one. We went from, yeah, but we went, from, that's the kind of bands we jumped from people like Baton Rouge and, and Circus Power. And, and I'm not saying anything bad about the bands, but just the level, we jumped to a, a whole different level of, you know, bands. And we, we've been playing with people like that from, you know, we've played with everybody from Tesla to Timbuktu, you know, so. It all it all changed in a very uh, very good way, and this is all for the first record, right? Yeah. So then, what are as you guys go into? How do you prepare for the second record? How do you get a producer? <laughs> kind of walk us through that. I assume the uh, expectations are higher then too. Well, the uh, yeah, but it was more of a the bitch of it was is by the time we were doing the second record. The um, you know the label had changed. All the people that we signed with were pretty much gone, except for Clive. And um, it was a more of a battle because uh, you know we were uh, we were out on the road watching the grunt thing, kind of watching it happen. You know we were out touring while that was going on. So you know we were sort of writing a little darker stuff, and um, you know we were kind of going where music was, where we were out there with it. And um, you know we were sending stuff in and. Uh, it was kind of a battle because you know after you have a little song like "Let's Get Make You Blind" and that's all, that's all they're wanting to want you to send them. And um, there was kind of a battle there. So we, uh, 
I kind of sold my soul on that record, uh, on the second record. And, um, I did a couple of songs off that record for, for some money and instead of doing them for what I should have done them for. And, uh, I sold my soul to the devil. And uh, that's why after the second record, the deal went down, and, uh, it just all went south. <laughs> so what do you mean? What, 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 well, what did you have to do? I was asked to do, uh, I was, I think there's a song called I Find My Way, and uh, I did a version of Tobacco Road, and it was a uh, uh, client was asked if I would do these three songs, he would give us, you know, give me something grand, and uh, me being young and stupid said, oh, sure, and I did those three songs, which, you know, David Lee Ross had done uh, Tobacco Road, and whoever else has done Tobacco Road, and yep. I, I just did some stuff that, that I, I sold my soul to like, hey, <laughs> I did. Uh, I did. I went against my own grain, and uh, for some money that you know, thirty grand wasn't nothing, and uh, I paid for it. So these if were, that makes these, any sense. Yeah. So these were uh, covers or songs written that you wouldn't have normally done. Yeah, I mean, well, this music was changing. If I'd have done, you know, that um, there was a couple, one song under the Pink Mustang song, what I call it. Uh, if I'd have done that in '83, it would have been probably a hit. But you know, yeah. the grunge yeah. things was coming in, and it wasn't '83. <laughs> so, t- talk to us about. You mentioned you were seeing some some new bands and sort of this grunge sound on the road. What 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 bands were there? Any shows that kind of pop into your mind early on where you thought oh, this is different, or you really got the sense that there was something different coming? Uh, I'll tell you where I really knew it. We we did a big show in. Uh, in uh, Seattle, Washington, and uh, that really showed us where we were at. Uh, you know, the crowd was good, but the the scene was night and day different. You know, we'd been there before, but it was it was night and day. It was uh, you could just tell it, the things were coming on. Music was changing. You know, it was it was overrun by uh, overrun. So <laughs> I can say. Yeah, you know, Jay and I have have revi- revisited records that. You know, they they were tagged as being '80s bands, like you mentioned that you weren't real. You didn't really think of it as an '80s band, but like we listened to right. bands like Saigon Kick or um, uh, a couple other ones where, and and I heard it when I was listening to this one where it, it didn't really sound like a quote unquote '80s band. It just sounded like a rock band, but because of right. where it sits in the timeline, it sort of gets lumped in with those bands and right i think you know going back now it's a little bit easier i think you know we've noticed going back now there's you know there's a lot of bands that you know continue to make albums into the 90s that people thought of as 80s bands um and still continue to make really solid records like like skid row made a really good record oh yeah i mean you know uh there's definitely a there's definitely, I mean, you just got, we used to call it being, uh, you had to, in that era, you had to have a, a ballad to be valid, you know, and uh, that's just the way it was, you know, you just had to kind of go where radio and MTV was at, and, um, right. you know, <laughs> that's the, that's just the way it worked, you know, uh, and uh, it's it's a, it's a double-edged sword, you know, you want the, you want the big, and the fame and the good stuff, but you gotta, you know, you gotta, it comes at a cost, you know. So what ended up happening after Wake Up Screaming came out? There's a break from '93 to 2000. Um, did you just 
after that ex- experience with having the, you know, the, you, like you said, selling your soul to the devil, were you uh, sort of turned <laughs> off for a little while to? Uh, oh, no, no, no. No, okay. I, I went right right after right after uh, after Wake Up Screaming. We were we were back right, and I got Travis Hall in the band because uh, Steve and, and Mark uh, McMurtry had left, and I got Travis Hall in the band uh, and a couple other bass players. And, uh, now we'd already threw five together, threw, uh, five or six songs together, and was sent into the label. But that was uh, that's when it really got really bad. It was when you know there's not a left to make you blind, or there's not a ballad, and there's not this and. Uh, I don't know. We probably sent them ten or fifteen songs, and uh, and everybody, like I said, the label, all the label had changed. So uh, we just wasn't getting. Uh, there was they wasn't receiving any of the songs that we were sending uh, with uh, any kind of good. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. They just, you know, there was always something. This is not this, and, you know. And uh, we were just sending them stuff we wrote. So I quit sending them songs, and they quit calling me. Basically, what it rolled down to. Okay, so we, this, is, <laughs> this is like 1993, ish. Yeah, oh. yeah. So we went through our little down departure there. Uh, you know, we're uh, we're kind of butt hurt a little bit, you know, because we were on a kind of a roll there. But uh, you know, that's another learn lesson. Uh, we seen where music was going, so uh, you know, I, I I wrote the the stuff that I was sending on my I, I wrote. It ended up being a band, an album called Backtracks, and uh, ended up putting it out years later. Oh, okay. So that's the album that came out in two thousand one. All right. Yeah, I mean, I wrote that. I actually wrote that. Most of that record started in ninety four, and I ended up putting it out, you know, a couple of years later. But see, that I was sending that stuff to Arison. I was sending it to to Geffen, and uh, the guy Geffen loved it. He goes, "God, I love it, but I don't know what to do with it." And now, you know, it kind of turned around. And, you know, the heavy, uh, swampy rock and roll music is pretty much what country is now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I call it, I was so far ahead of the curve, I was behind. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, and I think, uh, you know, Jay and Jay and I are, are kids of the, of the eighties and in terms of that's when we were listening to radio, you know, in high school and stuff and and grade school and stuff. And, um, you know, before that metal and, and hard rock weren't popular in terms of like MTV, it was, you know, if you remember, think about the early eighties, it was all like Michael Jackson and Madonna and, you know, new wave bands and stuff like that, you know, metal and, and hard rock really started out as underground, uh, you know, music genres that sort of were, you know, not looked upon very favorably by, you know rolling stones of the world and uh it really was only the the you know once the power ballads came in and there was some you know hits in the mid to late 80s you know that's when it got i guess you know yeah when they when they got it smoothed out see that's what's tough about it the rough edge and the and the good the good music that we all love is the good rough edge and then they kind of tone it down and make it and you get a ballad where they can uh push it out on the radio and the, you know, everybody, the masses can hear it. Uh, that's your turning point. That's when they, uh, you know. Yeah. And it seemed like, it, you know, with the, like you mentioned, with, you know, grunge and stuff and alternative music in the early 90s, it seemed like more hard rock and, and straightforward hard rock and metal sort of dipped back down again 
Uh, not that it wasn't popular. Like, you know, Jay and I would still go out to shows and see bands that were, were doing that, but it just yeah. wasn't, it, you know, instead of the 10,000 seat or 15,000 seat venue, it was, you know, 5,000, 1,000, yeah. those kinds of places, but yeah. there's always a place 500. for it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was the hardest part when we were going through the, you know, the parts when we were, we were kind of out of the picture. Uh, that's what, you know, that's where we were at. We were playing really small clubs and, and, and stuff like that, but, you know, still playing, uh, people still, uh, spending their hard earned buck to come and see us. So, uh, you know, we, that's what we do. You know, we just gotta take the highs with the highs and the lows with the lows. So what, what did you, uh, do, can you remember back to like 1994 to maybe like the two early two thousands? What, what bands were you hearing and, and how were you thinking about, you know, um, sort of where music was going and where you might fit in with that and what kind of music you wanted to make during that time? Well, I mean, I always just kind of do, um, I, I, I see when I say I sold my soul, I always just do what comes with the gut, you know, and, and if it feels right, you know, if there's five guys in my group and if we're all happy with it, we're good, you know, if, don't, if, if I don't know if you call it metal or whatever, but whatever 10 or 15 songs we come up with, that's, uh, that's just what it is. I don't know if it's, uh, I don't even put it into a a genre or whatever. Um, I don't even know how to explain it. Um, um, I think what I was really listening to was a buddy of mine, Damon Johnson, had a band, Brother Kane, and that's what I was, uh, you know, I was I was into that for a, a long time and writing with him on and off for years. So uh, just that type of, you know, just kind of straightforward, uh, you know, rock and roll, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know and if that were- makes sense. Yeah, they were one of those bands that were able to get some radio airplay, kind of doing that. They toned it down a little bit. They were more a little bit more accessible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another band that came to mind was um, it was it was Jackal. Somehow survived that whole time as well. Maybe you should have yeah. wrote a song with a chainsaw in it or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think Jackal them were them guys were like us. They were so redneck they didn't have a choice but to just push on through. So yeah. Well, I think they they opened You're not going to ever and your salad too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, getting the getting the breaks and you know and opening up for uh, we went out with them guys. They before they got their deal, they used to sleep on our floor. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, them guys since their conception. Um, but you're never going to confuse Jack with anything other than straightforward ACDC rock and roll. Yep. Well, to uh, to give merit to your trying to classify the band, if you look at uh, Apple Music, they have your first record listed as metal and your second record listed as pop. So <laughs> they're not <laughs> sure what weird. to do with it either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's odd. <laughs> hey, whatever, whatever works, hey. you know. <laughs> hey, they got the new one as rock though, so they're getting all right. <laughs> We're getting, getting closer. <laughs> they're narrowing it down. They're getting, they're getting <laughs> that's there. it. So can you talk See, about... I don't know if that... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, man. I was going to ask you about the about the 2000s and um, Paris Records and your experience with that. I know, you know there were in the early 2000s, it seemed like a lot of bands that, that lost their homes in the, in the 90s, there were a couple of labels like Paris and a few others that a lot of bands ended up on and they were able to put out label... They were able to put out records... And sort of find a spot for, um, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other labels, Jay. I, I know you have a better 
CMC was another yes, one. That's one. Like, yeah. Um, just what curious about your experience with putting out those records on them, uh, on that label and, and, uh, um, that time period as far as, uh, music goes. Well, it was, uh, it was a, um, going from a label like Aristo to a label like Paris is a big, a big, big culture shock for you anyway, because, uh, the money, the money, uh, the money that each label has is, uh, you know, Aristo's got money to push you and, uh, and, and Paris, you know, that was, uh, that was probably my lowest point. Uh, I'd already recorded the smoking death of the record. I sold, uh, I had an 81 Corvette and I sold that. And, uh, it was my last possession that I had. And I sold that to do the Delta video record. And, uh, I had it done and somebody turned me on to Tom and, uh, I just sent it to him, you know, uh, I didn't have no, any, any avenues to get music out at that time. So, uh, uh, I sent him the record and, uh, he called me back and, uh, you know, we had a good friendship and, uh, you know, the money wasn't great, but, uh, he was helping us get stuff out. And, um, so, uh, you know, I did that. I did a couple records with him and, and, uh, I tried it for a long time. I just couldn't get it to, uh, I couldn't get enough push out of him to get where I needed to go. So, uh, you know, we parted as friends and, uh, moved on down the road <laughs> Gotcha. So, and this is this is um, when early, I guess, uh, internet and music starts to happen in terms of MP3s. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the whole landscape of music now uh, is completely different. So, what are your thoughts on having gone through the Arista experience? Kind of, you ran the gamut. I mean, you, you saw it at music at its the the old music business at its height. You saw it collapse, yeah. and now I think we're in a interesting new place what what are your thoughts on sort of how to go use i guess technology or the you know the current means to be able to go support your band and get your music out well i think nowadays you know people people say good and bad things about the internet but i really love what's happening right now at the internet because you know back when i first started playing music there was no mtv and there was no you know there was no um you just, you know, you would hear something and you would go dig it out and find it. You know, you'd go to the record store and, and flip through there until you found it, you know. Uh, uh, and I think that's what's cool about the Internet now. There's, uh, man, there's so much good music out there. I'm into, uh, right now, I'm into uh, Hell Yeah. And uh, the songs are just uh, tremendous. The lyrics are great. Uh, uh, but there's so much stuff you can find. And, you know, I, I don't like saying it in a bad way, but, you know, you're kind of, Back in the day, you were pigeonholed on, you know, what radio or MTV said was cool or what was, what was what. You know, that's that was your only outlet. And I think uh, the technology of the day, man, we're getting so much stuff off of this. Uh, you know, our our record that we put out this year uh, has done more than I ever hoped it would do. So I'm very happy with it. And it's all because of the internet. You get to play in front of. Uh, you know, there's a our old crowd comes and we played in front of so many new people. It's awesome, so I, I'm loving it. And I got to imagine, you know, being able to have do. use like social media and Facebook, you know, sort of ups the ability to connect with your fans that you didn't have. Oh man, you can you can just you can reach out at any time and, and reach thousands of people. You know, it's a it's a beautiful thing. I, I'm digging it. Uh, like I said, it gave uh, gave my band and 
and me a whole different life, you know. Uh, I've been playing. I played last uh, month with the Kicks uh, in Detroit, and it was, you know, it's awesome. You know, we're playing with uh, good big big bands and big venues, and uh, playing in front of new people, and and uh, tons of the old people are coming out, and uh, it's it's a beautiful thing. So, what is your uh, what's your current uh, approach on touring? How do you guys uh, go about that? Um, are you doing one-offs? Are you doing, you know, weeks at a time? How, how, how are you going about doing touring? Right now we're doing like, um, you know, uh, say we'll leave on a Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, could be home Monday. Uh, you know, we've got a, a big pile of dates, but they're all uh, tentative right now. They're not nothing in stone, but uh, we're getting ready to do a whole run up the East Coast from, uh, I think, Florida all the way up uh, into Canada. Um uh, and uh, I think we're going overseas for the first time uh, in uh, August. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, my thing on touring is whoever wants us to go, send me some dates and I'll go do it. Nice. So you never toured outside the U.S. <laughs> uh, during the air You know, other than Canada, no. No, this will be my first time going to the U.K. You know, we are, we're already booked over there. So uh, that's going to be a first for me, and I'm, I'm doing that. Cool. Is that are those yeah. like individual shows? Or are you doing some like festival type stuff? Because I know there's some huge rock uh, festivals in Europe. A, it's more festival festival things. Uh, and I didn't even really know we were were slated for them, but uh, I did an interview over there a couple of weeks ago, and the guy said we were slated for uh, two big festivals over there in August. So uh, you know, I'm like, cool. <laughs> And I, I wanted to ask about, in, in terms of the record, um, you have a couple of uh, interesting guests who um, appear on the record. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. So how did, Very how, interesting. <laughs> yeah, can you talk about how um, you've got Zach Myers from Shinedown um, playing on the uh, lead song, Loco Crazy, and then um, Wayne Swinney from Saliva is playing on the song Snake, and then uh, Jim Dandy. <laughs> well, how did all these come together well i've known zach myers since he was knee high to a grasshopper i'll say uh, i've known him forever he since he was probably 12 or 14 years old he um would come and see us play and get up on stage and play with us and we would go see him and uh i had a studio down here in memphis um i was probably one of the first people to ever record him he had a little blues band and uh we just were friends me and his dad were friends and uh you know, when I was putting this together, at uh, you know, Justin is the guy that produced it. That's where Zach does all of his, um, his, um, you know, solo stuff and all of his uh, side project stuff. And uh, I just talked to him, and I said, "Man, do you want to come and play on a track?" And he was, you know, uh, he, uh, you know, for a band of us considered the '80s band, for any of them guys, to even, you know, put their name associated with us as a you know, a leap of faith on their part. And uh, that shows that they're true friends to me. And, uh, you know, he, he said he'd love to. And we came out looking on the local crazy, which I didn't even think was going to make the record. So, uh, you know, we took it apart and started playing it. And uh, it turned out to be one of my be- my favorite ones. So uh, same way with, uh, you know, uh, Sweeney. I've known him forever. Incredible guitar player. And, uh, I ran into him one night at the club, and he goes, how come I'm not playing on this record? And I said, come on down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he came down and played on Snake. And uh, Jim Dandy was just in the studio one night with us uh, hanging out. And uh, we had been playing this little old song. Uh, 
stand up forever, you know, and we were just messing with it in the studio. We didn't even know if we were going to put it on there. And uh, he came over and uh, they were wanting me to write him a bunch of lyrics for it. You know, Jim Dandy, he's a pretty serious cat. He's done it all. He's been uh, been around for a long time. And uh, I just told him to listen to it three times and let him uh, turn him loose on the mic. And uh, he came up with some backup parts and some different things. And uh, I just threw it on there. I thought it was, I was very uh, grateful that he would even you know, uh, take the time to jump on a record with us. So, you know, all them guys, very cool. Very, uh, very cool. So uh, he just showed up at the studio, <laughs> like yeah, dropped out I mean, of the sky. He was with a friend of ours, but he was uh, okay. with a friend of ours hanging out. And, uh, you know, we were just talking. I said, let's get him to do it. And, uh, he jumped up there and done it. <laughs> nice. Very and it's cool. spontaneity at his best, you know? Absolutely. And I love stuff like that. So <laughs> if I can capture it on tape, it's even best. Well, I don't guess it's tape no more. But <laughs> <laughs> mm. How do you record? Are are you, is all this stuff, um, where was all this stuff recorded for the new record? I was uh, recorded at uh, Crosstrack Studio here in Memphis, Tennessee with Justin Rimmer. And uh, it is a, it's a very cool place. It used to be a train depot where these Civil War soldiers would uh, would all come and catch their ride to go to war. And uh, mm. it's a very cool feeling, and it's an old wooden building, and it's just uh, it's it's got a real cool feel in it. It's a good vibe, and uh, but it's all uh, you know all modern, and the recording process is nothing like that done before. So that was different. It was a learning experience, and it was uh, it was very cool. You know, back in the day, you would set up all in a room and play. And, uh, you know, when we came to do this, uh, the drum tracks had already been laid down and uh, never worked that way before, but uh, just dissected all the songs like that and layered them together and uh, turned out awesome. Love it. Oh, so you so you were able to do track by track versus... I imagine that changes your performance, though, a little bit in terms of if you're doing the vocal to just a, a track as opposed to being in a room with folks does that yeah change your intensity level uh you know what i think uh i think it kind of clears up a lot of uh i don't know because like i said we started with a drum track and we just started layering and then bass and uh, uh you know and, and all along i was singing stuff to it and we were changing stuff so uh it, it was more of a dissection uh process than usually before usually we kind of had it in our head and we just went in there and, and ripped it and we played it 49 times till you got it you know good and then you would go back and over it up um this was a and i'm really i really like it this way is uh just the dissection of it you can really get down and and find out where it's going and find out what it needs and uh it's uh it's different <laughs> i don't know how to explain it but it's very different i, I like it a, a lot it gives you i don't think it changes the intensity i just think it cleans up a lot more and it gives you a a lot more avenues, I guess, because I changed melody lines, it changed words, it changed everything, guitar lines, everything. But uh, you know, it's just more of a more of an experiment process, I guess. Okay. And you recently did the um, was it the Rock and Pod Expo in in Nashville? Yeah. You were a guest there. Yeah. How did, what was that experience yeah. like? That was uh, it was different for me, you know. Uh, 
I've never been to nothing like that where you just go in and, uh, you know, there's, I think there was 16 interviews back to back. It was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, and just seeing all the stuff there, uh, it was a very, uh, it was a eye-opening experience because uh, just really see how much the internet's out there and how much it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the way to go. It's, the, it's where it's at right now. Were you aware of podcasting before you were invited to that event? I was aware, but uh, yeah, I'm not really, you know, knowing what it was till I cut in there because I was like, damn, these guys are jammed in here, man, and they're just <laughs> bam, 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 side by side, and uh, very cool, you know. Yeah. Well, uh... it's kind of neat that y'all can do. It's not kind of neat that y'all can do stuff like, you know, I'm talking to y'all from Memphis. I don't know where you guys are. But, uh, and then it goes everywhere. It's just, just uh, well, that's it's just a, it's a lot different. Yeah, that's the fun part about podcasting is that uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, and Jason is in Austin, Texas, and right. so we can talk to anybody anywhere. We talk to people in Australia. We talk to people in LA. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. And that's so, that's awesome. That's that's very cool. Yeah, we don't. Uh, we don't th- I don't think we'd be able to do this if we actually had to physically show up and interview people with a microphone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would uh, it'd be a little expensive. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we used to do that. You know, you'd have to drive to Nashville or drive to somewhere and do interviews. And uh, that's what we would do. We would do whole tours of going through towns to different radio stations and doing interviews. You know, that was a, a bizarre. <laughs> So for 2018, what does that uh, what's that look like for the band? I know you mentioned about Europe, um, and then you said you've got some dates scheduled on the East Coast. Yes, sir. We've got a bunch of stuff happening. I, I just don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm afraid to say what it is yet because I don't want it to fall through. Um, but I know we're uh, we've already started writing a new record and uh, we're uh, we're putting that together. So that's our. Uh, you know, touring and, and doing another record is what we're gonna gonna try to do. Try to stay alive, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When, when do you think, think you'll have the record? Push. Huh? When do you think you'll have the record ready? Uh, well, right now um, we've got three songs pretty much in the can, ready to go. Uh, we started a couple more when Gipsips got back in the band, and uh, we've had a couple of songs that we've been pushing around for. For uh, before we started doing uh, the grind record, but uh, as soon as this grind record's done, we're going to re-release uh, the Smoking Delta Voodoo record. We're going to remaster it and, and put new pictures and uh, and freshen it up and uh, put it out there because uh, that was one of my favorite records. And like I said, it was on Paris and I didn't have much of a, an outlet to get it out there. And there's some good songs on there, and uh, I'm going to put that out as soon as uh, grind is is down and done uh, and finish up the new record while that's happening. And then, uh, you know, try to keep on rolling. We got a good push right now. And, uh, you know, the fans and people are coming to see us. And uh, we're just going to keep on keeping on, baby. So uh, out of curiosity, what is the the situation in terms of rights on the uh, the Arista records? Has, does, it, does Arista still have those rights or do, have those reverted back to you? Well, um, there was a little battle on that. I think the, uh, I'm not even sure if it's Arista that has them now, but, uh, we had talked to them about doing, uh, 
you know, buying the rights to do uh, re-release some of that stuff. But I think what I uh, I wanting to do is the new band and the new uh, the new stuff we're doing and the way we're playing the old stuff is I think every time we put out some new material uh, or anytime we do some new material, I think we're going to, you know, just go ahead and re-record or do some live songs and uh, always put some on there from the from the older stuff. Okay. Because the new band plays it a lot different and uh, just to keep it alive, but, uh, you know, proud of those records but uh, i want to keep moving forward i don't want to be known for uh uh i mean i'm proud of love can make you blind and all that stuff but i don't want to be known for what i've done i want to be kind of known for what i'm doing and i want to keep pushing and uh keep writing songs and playing new songs plus if you record them and do them (laughs) live that they'll have a a thousand percent less reverb on them Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. The, the, Reverb the, was a tool back in the day, wasn't it? <laughs> it sure was. But uh, the the live versions of the songs from the uh, second record are sound much better on the uh, the live take than they do with all the well, reverb know, on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's more raw and it's it's more like we are, you know. Mm-hmm. Back when yeah, you start dealing with money and then people trying to overproduce and and it's rock and roll man it's you know it's guitars and uh guitar bass and drums and some guy singing yelling uh you know it's what it is it's rock and roll mm-hmm. <laughs> all right well jay do you have anything else you wanted to ask no, or I'd... all right <laughs> good good all right well rick thanks so much for spending some time in your sunday evening with us this was a lot of fun and well, hey, man, thank y'all you. for talking to me. Thank hey. y'all for talking to me. I'm just an old guy in Tennessee who plays music, man. You know? Where well, can people find out about the band and connect with you? Uh, anywhere you can get, uh, anywhere you can download or get music, you can get the music. Uh, or, uh, you know, our, our, our EMN Facebook page, which is Every Mother's Nightmare Band. Uh, or you can go to Bill Chavis from Highball Records. You can go to his website, uh, or, uh, or our, our website is uh, emnrocks.com. You know, we can find out anything you need to know right there. How much trouble we're in and everything. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Rick. I really appreciate it. This episode will be up, so you know, on um, this coming Tuesday, so two days from today. I'll be uh, okay, cool. turning this around, and um, we'll be sure to... Uh, you know, post it on our page and link to your website and to the uh, Facebook and, and Twitter accounts and all that kind of stuff. So, um, thanks, man. Uh, have a great rest of your Sunday evening. And, uh, <laughs> thank you, man. You too. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, guys. All righty. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right, Jay, that was our conversation with Rick from Every Mother's Nightmare. Always fun to talk with folks from uh, bands who were a part of that weird time period in the early 90s where 80s hard rock, hair band, glam metal, whatever you want to call it, while those bands were crisscrossing over with the 
early grunge scene and it's such a it's such an odd time for music uh yeah and we love it and yeah. a great lesson there with uh sort of feeling pressured to write the ballad so that you can get to hit so that you can keep getting the money but then at the end of the day when you don't do what you truly believe in that can be used against you yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, so bands even now, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's as much pressure anymore to do that, but, uh, to adhere, but it's just a, a good example of, it's usually best to stick to what you're comfortable with and what you think is right. Absolutely. So, so I want to remind everybody, you can join us at patreon.com forward slash dig me out to become a patron. Uh, you get bonus content from episodes. You get to vote in our album review picks uh, we'll have our first one in 2018 uh, in february and then they'll go throughout the year up until november every month we'll have one from february to november of 2018 and then you also get entered into our contest we'll be coming up shortly on the announcement of our fourth quarter contest that'll be this week as a matter of fact we'll be announcing what that's going to be if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback at itunes So for Jay, I'm Tim, and we're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber or request a review at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. Now there's cracks here in the window Well, those shattered lines lead two times I'm left behind And there's faces